0: Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Foster Warrior Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ, Sermons from the Pulpit of Fosteria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading for this morning is Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25 this in my interpretation and understanding is paul talking about his life after he is a christian and a primary reason why i think that it's after he is a christian is it fits the warp and woof of the argument of romans as a whole because it is true that after romans chapter 5 and from 5 1 we're talking about effects of the one who has been justified by faith I also think that it's the case because I don't think any man, before he is a Christian, can truly say, like Paul does here in this passage, that I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I think the only thing that we as natural men, before the Spirit, brings new life into us, are capable of delighting in, is ourselves and sin. And so I think this is a, a reality of the struggle that Paul has that we should be expecting to fight in regard to our own understanding. We're going to go ahead and change our scripture reading at this point and say that it's Romans seven fifteen through Romans 8, 2. And we read there this. For that which I do, I allow not... For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is, therefore now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Matthew chapter 18. We're in verses 8 and 9. To Ellen's comment, we could all be reminded that Matthew 18 has been talking about how to enter the kingdom of heaven requires us to turn and become like little children. So if the children are invited back, then I guess we all do need to walk out. But we are here as little children thinking through what it means to serve one another, being those of this lowest status, dependent, unable to care and provide for ourselves. And ultimately, then, having nothing in our hands to offer, clinging to the cross of Christ, we serve. And what our service last week specifically looked at was thinking about how we are to pursue holiness together, not putting stumbling blocks in anyone else's way, but welcoming the one such little child in the name of Jesus. And we didn't quite finish thinking about stumbling blocks. And Jesus directs our attention not just to stumbling blocks that are outside, but those that come from within. It kind of seems to remind us that one of the first steps of pursuing holiness together is pursuing holiness individually. And So Matthew 18, verses 8 to 9, says this. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee, it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Father, do ask. we do ask, Lord, that you would help us to think rightly through these words. That we would understand the message and point that you are teaching us today. That we would understand more about you in wholeness and completion. Lord, I, I thank you for all that you have done and will do in our lives. How you have redeemed us and brought us to be a people for your own possession. How you organize and and ordain all things according to your wills for your ultimate glory and for our good, our conformity to Jesus Christ and our eternal salvation. Lord, direct us with that end, with your beautiful preservation and your beautiful providence, your care in us and for us. May uh, we underneath that then be intentional about fighting the sin that still remains within us. May we be careful about the evil that lies close at hand when we want to do good. And may we evermore strive to obey you and to live in faith. And so, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Before, he quite accidentally, in many ways, sparked the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was an Augustinian or a certain order of Catholic monk. And during this time, he felt very uneasy in his conscience. He was constantly seeing his own sin and failures and not certain how he could ever confess his sins enough how he could ever do enough to work through the works-based system that he had. He took his sins so seriously, and so his conscience was uneasy. Then, he was reading in the book of Romans, and he didn't get very far before he realized that his uneasy conscience had a place of peace. The righteousness for which he was psyching and striving so much, was by faith in Jesus Christ. He didn't have to do all these rites and rituals perfectly. He was overjoyed. He was relieved. But what might be surprising is that this isn't what directly sparked him to paste the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. This isn't the primary thing that seems to compel him to what becomes the Protestant Reformation. It's at least not the only thing. That decision had as much to do with the, un- with the ease of others' consciences as his own uneasiness. For instance, there was a time in which he was walking through town. And he saw someone who was a member of his parish, who was one of his sheep, carousing, drunk. Luther didn't have a problem with the drinking, but certainly had a problem with the drunkenness. And he confronted the man and said, you said something along the lines of, you're dishonoring Christ. You're making the shipwreck of your profession. You need to come and repent. And the man was indifferent. He could not really have cared less because he had intention of paying his indulgence, and having his sins forgiven. So why not continue in sin? Luther was certainly not indifferent to that. It was frustrating. It was disappointing, deadening, disheartening, depressing, and it rightly should be. Trusting in this one right not biblical, we might add, in order to grant some sort of forgiveness. But if we are looking at this two contrasts of the consciences, it's easy for us to leave it in 16th century Roman Catholicism, but I have no interest and never have any interest in arguing with people that aren't in the room. It didn't stay in 16th century Roman Catholicism. In fact, it didn't originate in Roman Catholicism at all. The prophets were regularly rebuking the people for this trust in ritual rather than actual genuine repentance. And it's very much on display in the lives of the Pharisees. And so perhaps it's unsurprising that we see these same types of struggles with conscience today, even in evangelicalism. Luther struggled with his conscience because he saw God as a God of demands, and he ultimately was relieved of that because he saw him as a God of forgiveness. But on the other half of the equation, the man that Luther confronted believed that he uh, believed God was a God of complete and easy forgiveness and didn't think about God as a God of transformation. A God that demanded anything of his people. Neither, in that instance, had a view that was complete. And it's our hope today to find that view of a complete God. To understand from the scripture that God is a God of forgiveness and a God of transformation. Which ultimately means that we, forgiven, must confront our sin. Must confront our sin, as Puritan John Owen famously said: "Be killing sin, or it will be killing you." Now, when we get into Matthew 18:8 8 and 9, it could be a little bit of a simplification to primarily speak about sin. After all, we looked last week at the word offense and saw it to be anything that would cause you to stumble from faith and obedience. And sin is just one category of such a stumbling block. But I would argue for two reasons that Matthew eighteen, eight to nine is primarily focused on sin as the stumbling block. And the first is that it's from our own lusts that this is coming. It's our own hand, our own foot, our own eye that is causing the stumbling. And the great enemy that lives within us that we must confront is our flesh or the sin that dwells within us, as Paul describes. The other reason is that we've seen very similar words from Jesus before in his first discourse or speech in Matthew's gospel in chapter five. Let's go ahead and turn back to Matthew five, part of the three chapter sermon on the mount. And the end of chapter five is six settings of looking at what the law said. But Jesus saying, but I say unto you, where he's confronting the reality of having external conformity to God's demands without caring about the inside at all. And then the second of these, he focuses in on adultery and says it's not about just not having sex. It's also about keeping your thought life pure, not lusting after a woman and committing adultery in your heart. And in that context of fighting against the sin that's inside, Matthew 5, 29 through 30 says, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. This call, if your right hand, if your right eye, is causing you to stumble, to cut it off, and throw it away. That is the call here in Matthew 5 of fighting against sin. And so when it's repeated in Matthew 18, we ought to be thinking well about that. We ought to be thinking about the seriousness with which we confront sin in our own lives. We're going to follow this structure today. As we think about God being a God of forgiveness, but not just forgiveness, but of transformation, we're going to look at be killing sin, or it'll be killing you, and finally look at a reward. And so we begin by looking at be killing sin. Matthew 18. Verse 8. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. The beginning of both verse 8 and verse 9 give quite a drastic image. If the cause of our lack of faith, if the cause of our sin comes from within us, we are to take drastic measures. Now, it is certainly the case that none of us are likely to ever have to take this, literally. And I want to remind us that if there should ever come that point, the point is we should be more than willing to. It shouldn't be a problem to think about cutting off, in verse 8, our hand or our foot, or in verse 9, our eye. My sister was born with a heart condition. She's one of the first people to have ever actually lived with this particular heart condition. But as she was being treated for the heart condition, she had a stroke that severely limited in the strength of her right side, including to this day. She can't fully extend her right hand. She's been told that she will never be able to learn to drive because she doesn't have the strength to do so, even if the pedals get switched to the other side so she could use her left foot. And she, most certainly then, has a lot of things that she has to do differently because her hand is barely usable. That's significant of how much her normal life And even the independence of driving is removed from her because her hand is weak. But even then, she still has it. The point that Jesus is making about the seriousness is he's saying it would be better to cut it off than to play and take sin lightly. To take the stumbling blocks placed before us. It is better to cut off the scandalizing body parts, regardless of how much we use them in order to fight sin appropriately. And see, even though we know that our hands are used all the time and our feet are used all the time, and it's good to have strong working ones, we intuitively understand that there are some things that are more important. For instance, consider a situation of someone having a cancer in a part of their body. And they're told, if you don't do anything, you'll live for about 30 days. We could give you much longer time in life simply by cutting off the part that's cancerous, whether it be a foot or a hand. We would find it quite strange if someone said, no, I must keep my hand. I must keep my foot. We know that it's better to have the amputation than to die. But perhaps we don't properly think about how serious our sin would be. How it's not something to be treated lightly. Christ did go to the cross and die because we or sinners and sinful. If the point and image that Jesus can be presented is stated bluntly, as we've seen so far today, it's that amputation is preferable to stumbling. It's preferable to losing state faith. It's preferable to sin. And to the point of Matthew 5, 29 to 30, as I now make this appeal to us, brothers and sisters, that we be this intentional about killing sin, that we be this intentional about by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body, I want to remind us that I'm not just saying anything about outward conformity. There, there have been times in which there I, I've heard um, preachers talk about killing sin and it sounds like they want you to live a certain way that others can see rather than actually be fighting sins that are inside of us. The sin, the seed of every sin, is within you. So rightly says McChay, famous for his reading program, I read through the Bible in a year. Certainly. Not about the non biblical commands that sometimes get looped into the idea of fighting against sin. It's not about going to movie theaters or not. It's not about drinking or not. It's about actually fighting sin intentionally. Fighting sins like judgmentalism, impurity, self righteousness, selfishness, greed. It's about fighting anger, bitterness malice, unkind words, things that society at large aren't going to point to and say, well, that's a significant problem that needs to be addressed, but things that do need to be addressed. Because there's no such thing as a light sin. There's no such thing as a sin that we can't take in this sort of way. We can't flirt with any small sins, but must fight them all. God is a God of forgiveness, but also of transformation. He didn't forgive us of our sins so that we could go on living however we wanted. It's not, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's that we've been saved to live a life of righteousness that ultimately drives us into closer communion with him so that we can enjoy his fellowship more because we are striving to be near him and striving to be like him. There is one area in the Christian life where we are called to not ever be content. And that is fighting our sin and fighting for obedience. And people can fight in pretty dramatic ways. And depending upon your particular personality and your particular sin, it might look differently. But we should be willing to take drastic measures because we know our sin is significant, and we shouldn't be comfortable with any sin that is present within our lives. J.C. Ryle once said, that A true Christian is one who is not only peace of conscience, but war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. A casual view of sin can be an indication that one is just a nominal Christian. A Christian in name only, who doesn't know Jesus and his transforming power. Which leads in to the second point of Matthew eighteen eight to 9 Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. We've mentioned the idea that amputation is preferable to sinning as being one of the ways in which you could describe it, but Jesus' point is actually stronger. It gets more to that medical illustration we were looking at. It's that amputation is preferable to damnation. Let's read again in verses 8 and 9. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee. Cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed. Rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye. Rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Jesus' words can seem a bit strange, but they are very much severe. Jesus is raising the stakes of what's going on, talking to his disciples, saying, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, because that's preferable than being cast into everlasting fire. If your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for that is preferable to being cast into hellfire. Eternal condemnation and punishment is nothing. Something where an amputation of a hand, a foot, or an eye is nothing in comparison to the torment that comes in everlasting fire, as Matthew 18.8 describes Where the worm does not die and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Something we would never wish upon anyone, no matter how much we disliked them. Or even if we were comfortable with the word, hated them. And Jesus is saying that we should treat our sin seriously. So as to not find ourselves there. He presents us a warning to fight for our faith and against sin with this serious earnestness that says that we would be willing to accept amputation so that we would not be cast into everlasting hellfire. And I'd like us to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verse 14. And be reminded again. Now, Jesus' words here, as strange as they at first sound, it's not the only place in which we see something. similar. In Hebrews 12, the point is also like what the point is in Matthew 18. Uh, a seriousness of fighting against sin, and particularly a seriousness of fighting against sin together. We're looking unto the faithful witnesses of the past so that we can set aside all of the sin and the weight that death so easily beset us, and run with patience the race set before us. Noting the loving, disciplining hand of God, and ultimately, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the author says this, Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of bread sold his birthright. Strive for the holiness without which... You can't see the Lord. And the author of Hebrews adds, be sure that your brother and sister are doing the same. Now I understand that this gets sticky. And we've looked at this stickiness in the past. Judge, based off of work, somehow our response to our sin as Christians affects our particular aspect. How does that all fit and work? And it is right, as we have done before, to respond to the stickiness by being reminded that yes, our salvation is built upon our continued perseverance in the faith, but our perseverance in the faith is not built on us. Ultimately, we can have assurance of salvation because the one who began the good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We persevere because we preserve, and that in and of itself is beautiful and true. But what I've been starting to think and realize is that we find this aspect of life so sticky because though we talk at times about being born-again Christians, we don't seem to spend much time actually responding to what regeneration is. When we talk about our testimony, we rightly talk about the faith and repentance that brings us to Christ from the human standpoint rather than the work the Spirit's doing in us, to give us new hearts and to bring us to that faith and repentance in the first place. We can struggle with the idea of having to mortify our sin in this way because we've separated two different parts of God as doing two different things. The God of holiness, of demands, and transformation crippled Luther when he separated it from the God of forgiveness we also then have a a difficulty of keeping what Luther found and this idea of the God of forgiveness and what that means for our life we tend to live even if not as dramatically like the man in Luther's parish treating God as someone who's given us forgiveness so what more does it matter what happens? But the God but God grants us forgiveness through the work of Christ by bringing us into Christ by the work of the Spirit. If we look in the Old Testament... If we think about the way in which the problem with the Sinai Covenant is given, it's explained and given as being a problem not because the law wasn't good. There were certainly more laws added because of continued transgression, but there was in this one significant difficulty that people's hearts weren't inclined. Turn to Ezekiel 36. While you turn to this promise of a different situation, of a covenant that will come, let me read to you two other passages Deuteronomy chapter 36 and Jeremiah 31 33. All three of these promises of God doing a work in us. Because the problem in the Sinai law and the problem of humanity that we cannot. We have a weight gliding us into selfishness and self-love and sin that we cannot fight against unless God does a work within us. Deuteronomy 36 And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed. So love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. Jeremiah 31 33, but this shall be the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then the Lord again promising of a future restoration. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Promise of forgiveness within the new covenant also brings this promise of a change of us. Not just a change in us, but a change of us it are of us. Such that now, while we still have in our members another law waging war against the law of our mind. We now have two different weights pulling us in different directions. One pulling us to sin that we are to fight against, and the other, the spirit at work in us, pulling us to righteousness, pulling us to Christ. And it's not really as if this is separate from the rewards we're getting in salvation itself. Ultimately, it's not accidental that we're pursuing obedience and holiness. It's not part of the payment, it's part of the benefit, because it's part of the promise of giving us a holy desire to see God. It's part of the desire to ultimately understand him and rejoice in him. The desire to, to have lives of obedience given within us is the benefits, one of the first benefits working in of our salvation. Because holiness brings us into closer fellowship with God and allows us to see. And that closer fellowship, that whole point reminds us that the demand to amputate as opposed to accept damnation is not supposed to be a legalistic burden weighing us down. Back in Matthew 18.10, Jesus is about to tell us that it is not the will, this is Matthew 18.14, It is not the will of your father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. The very act of regeneration that brings us this act of transformation throughout our Christian lives is also an act of great forgiveness that shows that God who set his love on us from eternity past, who continued to work and sent his son to die for us and has given us faith and repentance, is still at work within us so that he's not looking down trying to figure out who is not killing their sin enough. Because he is at work in us always at work in us to kill the sin because he brought us, gave us new life, and brought us to himself for that very purpose of being made new, being made whole, and ultimately in the end, entering into life without the flesh still present within us. This life we will be fighting against the flesh that weighs us towards selfishness and sin. But there's a, a reward and promise that's given, that's a future reward that matches with the reward we're currently having of being in presence with God. Matthew eighteen eight to nine also says this It is better for thee to enter into life or maimed. And again in verse 9, it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye. The end results of we who begotten by the Spirit take sin seriously. The end result is entering into life a life that transcends death and the problems of this world, that transcends our fallen nature, leading us into sin. A true life away from all the heartaches of this world and ultimately, most beautifully, an eternal fellowship with the most beautiful being in existence. A true life where we get to see him as he is, understand his purity, and indeed be like him. Committed to him, devoted to him. Forever worshiping the Father, Son, and Spirit. Forever rejoicing in their beauty and learning more about the wonderful complexities that that are greater than what we can understand. This is the amazing privilege of those who have been born again. This is the amazing privilege of knowing that Jesus paid the penalty so we could be brought unto God to live in communion with him and to strive to see him more and more. Ultimately, we are right to sing, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. Now we have the promise of seeing your face, of seeing Christ. We have the wonderful settled state declared righteous in your sight. That this is not disconnected from what we're supposed to be doing now. That as you have begotten us from above, and given us new life, we are to live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Not according to what is still in us. We're supposed to take sin seriously enough that we would, if necessary, accept amputation. We will take drastic measures. Lord, help us to have that proper perspective and to properly hold in mind you as a God of forgiveness and a God of transformation. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, Sermon's from the Pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?